Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. And oh my God, you guys, you know that I love a luxurious set of sheets. And I now have such a set of sheets because of a miracle made. They are bedding that has been inspired by NASA. They've got silver infused fabrics that actually make temperature regulating a thing. Uh, so you're not like getting too hot or too cold or whatever, you know, the whole thing that happens with your body's temperature losing its mind. Miracle made helps with that. One of the little things that my husband particularly loves about Miracle Made is that it like doesn't have as much bacteria as regular sheets because of it's infused with this silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth. So it leaves the sheets cleaner for longer. And then the thing for my husband is that it doesn't give him acne, which is like an issue for some people. But more than all of that, it's just luxuriously comfortable and delightful. And it has that cooling feeling while also being cozy. Very hard to achieve those two things at the same time. I mean, miracle made, come on, well done. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and buy some sheets today. And if you order today, you can save 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation at the checkout and you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So there's just a lot of savings here, folks. Order today, you'll get 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation. And Miracle's so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, which I don't see happening, um, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and use the code fake the nation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash fake the nation to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Fake the Nation, episode 220. Hello, hello, this is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about politics, and where we take the dainty throw pillow that is America, and we lovingly embroider it with the words, we're only doing optimism, and then we rest our laptops on it as we phone bank for Biden into the night. I am your host, Nagin Farsad, and folks, I signed up to be a poll worker. I don't know if I mentioned last week, but I signed up to be a poll worker. Um, I haven't gotten the assignment yet, which actually makes me wonder if we have too many poll workers in the great state of New York. It's I because I don't know, uh, Sarah, you're based in New York. Um, I don't know how many people you know in the poll worker world, uh, but I yeah. suddenly know very many and I didn't know any in previous elections. <laughs> yeah, I was one of the few people who trained for it way before this election. Never actually did it, but I trained for it. So I've been waiting for my assignment too and I haven't gotten it. I think they do do it at the very last minute. So there's still hope. There's still hope. Okay. Um, either way, if, if, it's be- if I don't get an assignment because there's so many fucking poll workers, how amazing is America? You know what I mean? Um, all right. right. <laughs> also, shout outs to <laughs> Leah Bonham and Vicki Cooperman, who also signed up to be poll workers and are uh, alums of uh, Yay Old Fake the Nation. Today, we're going to talk about the first general election debate and uh, Chris Wallace parenting hour. We'll also talk about Donnie's tax returns and the lighter side of disaster prep. Yeah, there is a lighter side to disaster prep, and we're fucking uncovering it here on Fake the Nation. Today, I'm joined by, and you've already heard uh, one of their voices, uh, but, oh, 
I'm so happy to see their faces today. I needed to see your faces. I think I didn't know that your two faces are the two faces that I needed most to see today. Um, Joining us uh, for, I don't know, the second or third time, I don't know, you're in my heart always, is author of Riot Baby, a book that everyone should immediately buy and revel in. It is the wonderful Tochi Anyabuchi. Hey, Tochi. Hello, Nagin. How are you? Oh, I mean, you know, I am just, that's what I'm, yes, all of those things that um, were expressed by my inability to express. Uh, Also joining us, you already heard their voice, folks, editor and co-founder of Reductorist, which is just a brilliant fucking site. And, um... Oh, we love this uh, panelist so much. That's why we've had them back so many times. Folks, it's Sarah Papalardo. Hey, Sarah. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, you guys, should we just like launch into it? I think so. Okay. <laughs> Let's not talk about feelings. Let's talk about facts. Feet, feet first. Feet first. <laughs> All right. So topic number one. Last night, we saw the first installment of the presidential debates, also known as Senior Citizen Interrupted. And my, uh, I guess let's just start with the broadest of broad questions. What did you think? Um, is a sound effect an appropriate answer? Because yeah. it's just like, <laughs> uh, No, I mean, I, um... I, I thought I could go into it sober and did not end the debate sober for sure. Um, it was it was an abomination. It was an abomination. <laughs> Tochi. Yeah, no, I think that's the sort of universal verdict. Uh, what did uh, what's her name Dana Bash call it a uh, shit show? Um, I personally wait. Did Dana Bash say that on live television? I, I don't know. I, I read about it after the fact, and it didn't oh verify God, whether hilarious. or not she'd said it on yeah, Twitter yeah, yeah, or yeah, on yeah, television. That's, a, that's funny. But that would be, you know, uh, history making in a sense. I personally loved myself too much to watch it live. I looked at I looked up um, on, you know, Al Jazeera and The Guardian afterwards, the the highlights and the and the live blogging and all of that and, you know, caught everything from the Proud Boys moment to Biden's Inshallah, which, you know, I wish more people were talking about right now. Uh, yeah, but, I feel uh, like it got um, swallowed or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was there was a lot. But, you know, I think I I share Sarah's uh, sentiment. Um, the uh, which I, at, at least for me also encapsulates this, this overwhelming desire to yeet this entire country into the sun. Um, but yeah, that's sort of where I stand right now. <laughs> Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, okay. So like, I recognize that it was, um, a really poor display of adulthood, um, by our, the guy that happens to be our president. Right. And I want to say as someone who's completely not objectively watching these things, I am obviously a fucking Democrat, but, it real it was really Donnie who was behaving badly. Um and and also to the point where the you know the moderator Chris Wallace um had to use trickery and like a lot of techniques, which by the way, and Chris Wallace, like I use the same 
tools with my toddler. And so I know where he got those. Um, but the like, oh, you'll like this next one. Shut the fuck up. You'll like this next one. You know, that kind of thing. I never say that to my daughter. <laughs> yeah, I was about the, to su- say. the subtext is shut the fuck up. You'll like this next one. Um, but, uh, but, but the, um, but that kind of like, you know, treating him like, oh, just just, give me, give me a quick sec. You're going to love this. You know, like that thing. Um, And, and also just like, you know, when he had to say like, Mr. President, please stop. Like it was, um, it was, I mean, I, I did not envy that job. Uh, You know, I had a lot of issues with, with some of the characterizations of the questions were not a lot, but I had some issues, but I think in general, like, it was a. It felt like a very impossible job. Uh, it also felt like Donnie's interrupting was was the was because of two things. One, he uh, maybe was taking advantage of of Biden's stutter and how like you know if you interrupt people with a stutter, it like actually worsens their stutter and their ability to bounce back and all that stuff. Um, And then two, because he really has no self-control. I mean, we saw that in previous debates. Like he has no self-control. He has no like, you know, serious grasp of the English language. Like there's a lot of things um, that he lacks. So um, I I guess my, my overall though was that this was, this was a really, yeah, to, just to get back to my actual thing that I started out saying, this was a very poor display of adulthood from the guy who happens to be our president. Um, but it's not like, you know, and, and, and sure, sure, it was broadcast on an international stage, but it's not, it's not like what our country is about. You know what I mean? Like it was an hour and a half of disappointment, but it what it is not fundamentally what our country is about. Um, so I didn't want I, I didn't want to like just I didn't sob myself into a puddle. You know what I mean? Were there moments for you that um, felt like Biden was being presidential or like what was the Biden tactic as far as you could see it? I think that the smartest thing he did, and he did a couple things well, but I think sticking straight to camera and talking to the American people was the most mature thing that happened on stage. I think you can, we can squabble about like the laughter and all that stuff, but you know, what it comes down to is like, what would you do in that? Everyone thinks that they could do it better if they were put in this situation. Like, oh, I could take them. Like, can you deliver a eulogy with a baby crying for 90 minutes? Like, I just, I, I think that he did the best he could based on what he was given. Yeah. No, agree. Tochi, did you see moments of that? Uh, no, I, uh, presidential? Like, yeah, how did he do to, for you? I absolutely agree um, with the point that Sarah made about uh, speaking to the camera and also the American people. I think another thing that people were, or at least that I was pleasantly surprised to see is because because 45 is perceived as so much of a so much of a of a pugilist in debate formats and like you know sort of a brawler or bruiser not in any sort of you know cognitively elegant sense like he doesn't <laughs> make points or like cognitively elegant are not <laughs> words that have ever been used within ever. any kind of distance of this mess, ever that guy. ever <laughs> um and so i i think 
the the moment that stands out to me is the will you shut up moment and yes. where where Biden essentially sort of hits back in a sense rhetorically or at least in 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 a rhetorical sense to 45 he's not letting himself get get bullied and i think part of it too has to do unfortunately with with Biden being and also being perceived as this sort of strong male presence on stage that that 45 can't like he can't hover behind. I mean, also because of social distancing guidelines, he can't hover behind Biden the way that he sort of hovered behind Hillary and to his supporters projected this idea of this overwhelming male presence, you know, over this, you know, what he tried to convey as a sort of diminutive, you know, female opponent. I also want to point out, similarly, he had a moment where he said, can he just hush for one minute, (laughs) which I also thought was really fun. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He also called Trump a clown, a racist and the worst president ever. So he didn't like mince words. You know what I mean? There was. And and it's interesting because he arrived onto the stage doing like that, that kind of like. Hey, buddy, like hand gesture. I don't know what you call that double fist kind of <laughs> mid mid chest double fist motion that you do. Um, and I was just like, oh, cute. He wants to start this like a couple of adults. You know what I mean? There's like a bit of grace to the way he wants to start this thing. It lasted like exactly like 17 seconds, but it was a nice way to start. <laughs> um, because I think he was just like, look, I was ready to be like a just like a human being here. But if you're not going to do that, then I will go ahead and use words like clown, racist, and worst president ever. Um, the other thing I thought that was interesting is that he didn't take the bait on defaming Trump's family. So like Donnie did this whole thing trying to like pull Hunter Biden into the muck, um, you know, and, and Biden repeatedly reminded everyone that these are all lies and that the, these, you know, that these claims were have all been debunked and that even Mitt Romney said that they were debunked and that we shouldn't waste taxpayer money on any kind of investigation. Da, 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 da. Um, and, and, you know, and I thought he handled that relatively well. Um, and he didn't use, he didn't use that opportunity to be like, you've, you know, you're, a t- you're, a, you're fraud as extended to your family. You've been paying your daughter as a consultant, like, you know, to, to pass money through like all of the, I mean, the number of things, I don't even, there's so many things that he could say about that family. Right. And he didn't, um, stoop to that level. Is that a mistake or is that smart? I think it's really smart. I mean, It's smart in the sense that uh, no matter how much fact-checking we do, people who support Trump are going to continue supporting Trump. So by playing the part of a fact-checker, he would immediately position himself as diminutive and and lesser than, and and the perception would be that Trump is the stronger person. So I think by not taking the bait, he did the best thing possible, um, in terms of damage control, at least. Yeah. Toji, would you did you did you think that that kind of self control would be rewarded by like the three swing state voters that we're all vying for? Yeah, I mean, more like point three <laughs> swing state voters. Uh, it's some point. guy's elbow, um, and then this other lady's one yeah, exactly. ankle that's unsure. <laughs> yeah, somebody's big toe doesn't know who they're voting for at this point. Uh, no, I think I think part of it is that. You know, as as Sarah said, you know, the the supporters of 45 are not going to be swayed. And I think an extension of that is that the the corruption, the sort of 
familial kleptocracy that is this administration is so like out there. The information you you like barely have to Google any of it to understand just how much of a sort of you know, uh, almost a caricature of a lot of immediately post-colonial developing world nations. This is when you have your, your you know, son-in-law as, you know, in this sort of made-up position, but they are responsible for, like, all types of policy decisions. And then you have your daughter who is somehow involved in the administration, but nobody's quite sure what her official role is. It's like, it's like that sort of thing where it's all out there. So drawing attention to it, doesn't necessarily add to your, you know, your points or your support or what have you. I think another point, too, is that this debate and more largely this campaign is a verdict on 45. Like, it's a verdict on him, not necessarily a verdict on Jared or even Jared's involvement in the administration or Ivanka's involvement in determining policy. It's a verdict on the horrible job that 45 has done and how he's been responsible for the just the titanic death toll under COVID and how he's been responsible for, for all these tragedies that have befallen the American people. And I think keeping the focus on him was very much to Biden's Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting because I in also would, I would have even wanted a little bit more of the over 200,000 people have died under your watch, over 200,000 people have died under your mm-hmm. watch, over 200, you know what I mean? Like it, you essentially just need to walk on stage and say that sprinkle in like the loss of small business and an industry in America and uh, and then just like top it off with like the threat of removing um, your health insurance. And then those three things, I think, um, alone are kind of all I really need to hear. And, 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 and again, it's like I'm not a strategist. I don't know. Interestingly, I have been doing some work on um, – Saving democracy, and and I've had uh, I've mentioned this before on the show in this really vague way because I'm not even sure what I'm allowed to say or not say. But anyway, the interesting thing is that like you know a lot of the research shows that like for example, um, talking about women's rights not huge uh, in moving the needle. (laughs) Sorry, world, (laughs) half of the world. Um, But uh, but you know, but talking about losing your health care. Now, that's a big one. Pre-existing conditions, that's a big one. Uh, and so when, when you're dealing with friends and family, you know, when you may have be having a debrief on these uh, debates, um, that's what you focus on. And I, um, and I think he did j- a generally good job of focusing on those things uh, because really the research shows that that works, that moves people, that upsets people. Um, it's unfortunate that women's reproductive rights don't upset people. But anyways, um, I mean, obviously, people are like into it by a large margin. Like they want women to have the right it's to, cool. over their own bodies. Yeah, like it's they're cool. like cool with it. <laughs> but um, but they're not yeah. it's it, it's not like a, a motivator to the polls type thing. Um, mm-hmm. So. Uh, so, yeah. So I thought that was I thought that was really good. And and I also think, you know, the expectations of Biden had had been brought down so low by by the Trump campaign, but also by just like everyone being like, you know, um, for the for the couple of months that we were like little, you know, dicks about it. Now, you know, I he's in my heart now, so I don't feel that way. Um, But but, you know, I think that because the expectations were so low, it was like, oh, I mean, this fucking guy would be a great president. You know what I mean? 
would be great. We don't, I'm not actually worried about that. Um, you know, because he has humanity. <laughs> and so it turns out that's like literally the one thing, um, that we've needed. So, uh, I guess what do you, uh, in my final question is, um, do you, I don't know, did, did this move the needle at all for anybody or did it just lock people in? I, I think in terms of, I, I think, I don't know that anybody's mind was changed uh, by the debate performance. I, I don't think anybody was like, oh, I, I was undecided and now I'm going to vote this way or, you know, I was going to vote for this guy, but uh, I think I might vote for this other guy. I think the change happened in whether or not you felt activated as a result of this debate. I mean, the you know, the big moment is, you know, that people keep coming back to is when 45 refused to condemn white supremacists and in fact oh, told right, the Proud yeah, Boys yeah, to yeah, yeah. stand down and stand by. Um, that moment where, you know, basically, you know, white militias, white supremacist militias were like, okay, that, that means we got the green light to like, you know, pop off on people. I think in terms of, and then on the other side, you had people who watched the debate and saw, or at least got, a very visceral sense of just like what is at stake. Like you could have, you could have, you know, uh, you know, somewhat geriatric, like not ideal guy, or you could have yeah, this. Yeah, 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 you yeah, can yeah, have yeah. apocalypse again. Like you can have, you can have the book of revelations happen to you for the next four <laughs> years. Like, what do you, what do you, you got to choose? So like, there might have been people who might have been sort of lackluster about getting to the polls or even volunteering as a poll worker who saw that and were probably like, okay, it's like, it's real. It's, this is, yeah, okay, this is real. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the Proud Boys moment was really interesting because it also, it was almost like a, um, it almost at first seemed like he mistook the word standby for something else. But then as the night wore on, it just felt like, no, that was, He's had many opportunities, right, to um, mm -hmm. to denounce mm -hmm. white supremacy, and he's never done it. So that was not a slip of the mouth or whatever. All, uh, you know, most of his sentence construction is does have that feeling, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but yeah. I think in that moment it was really like uh, he he meant what he was saying. Um, okay, well, you know what, uh, folks, before we launch into the next topic. We're going to take a quick break. And then before we take a quick break, I'm just going to let people know that we have this really fantastic merch available at podswag.com slash fake. New, first of all, we have a limited edition t-shirt that says, um, that says we're only doing optimism on the front. And then on the back, it's also a little fake the nation. But we're only doing optimism. Get the t-shirt, especially if you have a curmudgeon in your midst. Uh, the, they may especially need the t-shirt. Or you may especially need the power of the t-shirt in their presence. Uh, so um, go to uh, uh, podswork.com slash fake. Oh, and there's also mugs that say, don't talk to me till I've had my fake the nation. Um, so we've got the t-shirts, we've got the mugs, and we uh, uh, hope you support the show in these uh, difficult times, the most overused phrase in American uh, life in the last several months. Um, but in these difficult times, uh, uh, it would be a help to the show. Uh, so let's take a quick break. We'll hear about our sponsors and then we'll come back and we'll talk about other things. Today's show is sponsored by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app 
that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending. It helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I have used Rocket Money. And you guys, honestly, I had no idea how many things I was subscribing to that I didn't want to be subscribing to. I think we all go into, we enter into subscriptions with a Pollyanna view that we're going to use as a subscription, even though it's a super obscure, you know, educational app from Albania that uh, teaches Russian math or whatever. And then you're like, I'm never going to use this. Why did I get it? I should remember to cancel it. And then you don't. And I know you guys are like me and I know you've done this to yourselves. And guess what? 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about. So we're all in this bucket. And I think paying for that stuff is so angering and Rocket Money is there to help because basically Rocket Money shows you, hey, look at this is what all the things you are subscribed to. But then here's the bigger thing. To unsubscribe, you don't have to go through the whole rigmarole. Rocket Money unsubscribes for you with a click of a button. It's so easy. The other thing Rocket Money did for me, which I was incredibly grateful for, was reduce the cost of one of my bills. It was my cable bill. Yes, I still have cable. Rocket Money has over 5 million users that have saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I mean, that tracks for me and for the number of things I was paying for that I'm frankly ashamed of. So thank you, Rocket Money, for like fixing the shame glaze on my life. Uh, so stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation. Again, that's rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation. Rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation, you guys. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And we are back. And before we get into topic number two, I just want to do a quick racist to watch. So from Ian in Rhode Island, there's a state Senate race that needs your attention. Tiara Mack, who happens to be a black and gay woman, recently won the primary um, for Rhode Island State Senate District 6. She's running on a super progressive platform and her campaign has been the burst of optimism and hope. This is from Ian. The burst of optimism and hope that I am sure many others desperately need right now. In her words, elect gay black women. Um, folks, check out that race in Rhode Island and thank you, uh, Ian, for, for that little heads up. Lisa in Ohio, again, the poll workers keep flooding in the, the the phone lines. Um, 
Lisa wrote, I just want you to know this Sunday morning, instead of waking up to low-level existential dread, I requested election day off and filled out paperwork volunteering to be an election worker. I've never, in all caps, been a poll worker before. You inspired me. I'm like actually blushing really hard by just reading that. Um, and she wrote, I also bought myself a We're Only Doing Optimism t-shirt to wear while doing it. Ah, I love that. Um, so thank you so much, Lisa in Ohio. Does Lisa's example make anyone else want to do some more um, poll working or postcard writing or phone banking or whatever? Because uh, because we got a joiner. And also... In um, Arizona, District 17 is apparently a swing district. I believe it's the city of Chandler, and it might just be the key to a Democratic majority in the Senate and the Ari- sorry in the Arizona State Legislature. So, if you're in District 17 in Arizona, look at your peoples, see what your options are. That is an important district. And now let's get into. Oh, by the way, keep them coming. Keep the racist watch coming. We love hearing about them. Also, what you're doing, how you're volunteering, how you're supporting democracy right now. Uh, keep those emails coming. They keep uh, inspiring us, and then we pass on the message to everyone else. And hopefully, it's just like a a big warm hug um, from you to uh, everyone at Fake the Nation. All right, let us move on to topic number two. So the New York Times got a hold of 20 years worth of tax returns for Donnie. And it turns out the man hasn't paid much in taxes. Uh, He paid $750 in federal income taxes while campaigning for president in 2016 and $750 in his first year uh, in office. Okay, so those are some of the headlines. Um, But what what do you feel like you generally learned about Donnie from those tax returns, Sarah? I mean, other than goals, um, <laughs> you know, <I laughs> want to get there someday. Um, but I, ugh, the the thing that really irks me, and I don't think this is the fault of the New York Times, but immediately the narrative became about how little uh, in taxes he paid, and not about so much um, borderline fraud he has right, committed right. over the past twenty years. Uh, because the, obviously, the not paying taxes narrative is so easy to not care about if you're the type of person who thinks that someone is smart by using tax loopholes. So I, I don't know why. It maybe because it's the simplest thing to latch onto that social media like memifies this so quickly. Right, but like, the number. Oh it's God. like such a specific number. It also happened two times in a row, which makes it feel like. Extra, like, you know, uh, they made that happen on purpose, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there's so, I mean, it's a tedious article filled with information, but there is so much bad shit in there. Like you already said about Ivanka double dipping as an employee and a consultant on the same project. Like that is gnarly fraud that other people have done time for. (laughs) Yeah. I think even Michael Cohen (sighs) came out and talked about some of the tax fraud that he's engaged in, what he served prison time for, um, and, and, and what this, what kind of prison time this should amount to. Not that he's any kind of of, uh, you know, morality bearer on ethics. Toji, what did you learn? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, one of the sort of most powerful effects of the disclosure is that that sense of confirmation. Like, we knew that this dude wasn't paying his fair share in taxes. And part of it is, you know, the particular kind of schemer that he is. But I think another part of it is the fact that 
really wealthy people, or at least people who portray themselves to be really, really, really wealthy, just in general, categorically don't pay their fair share in taxes. Like, you know, you did, we don't imagine that Jeff Bezos pays yeah, his and he fair does share not. in taxes. So why just, would- st- Stop shopping you know, at Amazon. Go exactly. Ahead, <laughs> Always try and get so, that yeah. in. When I <laughs> but like having the number, I think, does something. Uh, similar to, you know, I think a, a, another good example would be, you know, the publishing paid me controversy that rocked the publishing world. You know, people knew that Black authors were getting advances at a smaller level than their non-Black counterparts, their white counterparts. But to see the numbers of the advances, it just hit different. And I think a similar thing happened here with the tax disclosures, where it's like 750 I paid more than that. Yeah. Like, so I, many Americans exactly. could say I paid more. I mean, the like, I, I don't know if this number is, if yeah. this is right, but the vast majority of Americans, let's just say, can say they paid more than that. In fact, guys, I, I wanted to point out, I thought this was really interesting, like how he stacks up compared to other presidents and what they pay, just so we could get, again, some context here. What does it mean to only pay $750 if you're president of the United States? Jimmy Carter paid $33,000 in his first year. So the, the, so the USA Today did a, did a little look-see uh, at the first couple of years of some of these other presidents. Jimmy Carter, $33,000. Bill Clinton paid $62,000. Um, Reagan, the great conservative, uh, paid $165,000. And keep in mind that the effective tax rate was actually much higher during Reagan's presidency, and Reagan is the president that they love the best. Um, Obama paid $1.7 million. Uh, and and just a, a, a little side note here, Pence, Mike Pence paid paid about $9,000. Kamala paid about $516,000. And Biden has paid $3.7 million. Um so there's some there are some examples to you of what other l- similarly situated po- you know political figures um, have paid. So the 750 again, and 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 I don't want to you know and fuck similarly situated political figures. A sales manager whose average annual income is 141 thousand dollars paid 13 thousand 521 dollars in federal income taxes. A registered nurse whose annual income um, is 77 thousand. 500 paid about one, almost $2,000. A rail transportation worker paid, uh, who makes about $67,000 paid $751, um, in federal income taxes. There is one, there is one similarly situated president and that is Richard Nixon, who was the reason why presidents reveal their tax returns in the first place. So he only paid a couple hundred one year. Right, too, right, right. And, uh, exactly. <laughs> true, <laughs> true inspiration. And, and the, exactly. Much the beloved. picture of criminality uh, is the reason why we have to do this in the first place. <laughs> so, and, and, and I like, oh my God, I know I've been talking too much. I'm going to throw it to you guys really quick, but I want to like Elizabeth Warren this for a quick sec, which is, I know, Sarah, you're talking about like the, the tax loop, that the 750 in this tax loophole is what everyone's focusing on. But I sort of also love that we're focusing on that because it is a loophole that we need to close because the U.S. government is on pace to lose $7.5 trillion in unpaid taxes over the next decade. If in this, I just we saw this in, in, in a New York magazine article, which was fantastic, called, called Trump's returns make a case for funding the tax police. That said, if the Internal Revenue Service fully enforced America's existing historically lenient tax laws, Congress could establish universal public daycare. Folks, this list is going to get crazy. Universal public daycare, tuition-free college, paid family leave, 
and a national high-speed race rail system while simultaneously bringing every household in the nation above the poverty line through direct cash support without raising taxes or increasing the deficit by a single cent. That is if the fucking IRS actually enforced America's existing tax laws. And that to me is crazy pants because like, I'm just like a regular person. I got a little, like a little letter about a a fucking um, audit, right? That made me urinate all over myself. I don't know if this has ever happened to you guys, but like I fucking, (laughs) I was like, I'm going to jail. Why do they want to, you know, and I am, you know, and like, I don't make any kind of the money that anyone gives a shit about. But that's the other thing is since the Tea Party wave in 2010, they've reduced the budget for the IRS. So they're, they, they're not, they don't have the money to go after the money. And they're going after people that make below a certain income threshold because I don't know, because it it's funny to see people like me fucking urinate themselves. I don't know. So so part of me is like, let yes, let's fucking bring attention to this $750 figure because it's criminal, because we need to close these loopholes. But also we just need the IRS to like do its job. I think that really speaks to just the moment we're in right now that Trump has melted our brains so much that we feel like we can't talk about something that's such an obvious thing we can all get behind that makes sense because we're too busy trying to prove that he's a fucking fraud. Both of yeah. these things are so important, <laughs> but it, it, it's just like impossible. It's a complete Sophie's <laughs> choice about what to discuss more. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I could not agree more. I think that, you know, the criminality aspect is so interesting because I think one of the things that constantly comes up with taxes and wealth redistribution is people constantly finding out just how much activity is actually legal, like technically legal, all the different ways to get around paying taxes, all the different sort of, you know, spells and financial black magic that you can conjure to not have to help pay for roads and fire departments and the rail systems and education and all that stuff, all the ways that you can avoid contributing to American society via the tax system and all of that is legal. I think that's such a huge thing. And I'm very happy, Nagin, that you brought up the IRS because, you know, as you pointed out, it's just easier for them to go after poor people than it is for them to go after wealthy people. Right, like because the, wealthy the, people can spend would, the money to have something take nine years exactly. the way Donnie's fucking audit is taking. I mean, nine years, get the fuck exactly. out of here. Exactly. Could you imagine receiving a, like, $70 million, like, <laughs> refund from the IRS? <laughs> like, that just boggles my, like, how do you, how does that happen? How, $70 million, could you imagine a check came in the mail after, you know, during tax season, after you filled out your taxes and everything, and it was for $70 million. <laughs> I know, it doesn't come, I, I had that so was many, the part I was like, that does that come like, in one check? Was it multiple checks? Yeah, was it a comically large check? check delivered by like a game show host <laughs> like a like, price is what, right <laughs> how did i i just didn't yeah. i can't even like imagine what that whole yeah. scene was yeah um it's yeah. it's shocking and i think the other thing that we need to talk about sarah that gets more to your point about him being a fraud is that now this fraud has personally guaranteed uh, the loans 
of uh, up to, I think it's $400 million. And those, uh, 300 million of those, and sorry, folks, I'm really giving you some general numbers here, but 300 million of those dollars are coming uh, due. Yeah, so so he, right, $420 million he is on the hook for that he is personally guaranteed, and 300 million of those come due in the next four years, which would also, if you'll note, be the same duration of another term. (laughs) So what that means is the sitting fucking president of the United States would be like going to Bank of America or whatever and and asking for a refi. You know what I mean? And by the way, the underlying assets are so horribly mismanaged and terrible and they're like stakes in fucking old shirts or something on top of golf courses <laughs> that like no one is going to refinance them, which is why he had to personally guarantee them in the first place. So then it's like, um, where's he going to get that money? So then he's like, what is he making phone calls to Saudi? Are fighter jets involved in some of these calls? I mean, do we... Like, this is, again, Sarah, you you said it early on, that this was a boring article with a lot of important details. <laughs> yeah. And this is the the thing, the, like, the passion, the feeling part of it that's very hard to, for, like, an article like that to convey. But what is going to ha- – what will happen when these loans come due if this man is our president? If he's president, there will probably be a way for him to refinance or, or or find another way to get money. If he's not, he'll be screwed. By selling the White House. Right, exactly. Right? The only, that's the By only way. By being like, okay, yeah. Wells yeah. Fargo, whatever you want, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, that's the only right. way. Or it's, is- a, or it's some sort of shady person. Um, that, you know, one of his shady dudes that he loves, like, you know, that also wears like ostrich feather shirts or whatever. And, and that guy will work it out for him. I don't know. Like those are very few options for in this kind of situation. And this is really why I wish we could, you know, try more directly to compare him to someone like a Bernie Madoff, because like twice in his life now, he's done like a a Ponzi scheme-esque attempt at just um, using his pretend wealth to get more money and then lose it all. And, you know, in this the case, it's in this case, it's not like it's like poor individual investors. It's like these giant banks that are losing. Um, but everyone who is part of his failed businesses are losing along with them. And I just think we're really failing to paint him as just a true, like, Bernie Madoff, he's doing things just as bad with every scheme that he puts through. And when this deck of cards comes crashing down, like the same bad shit is going to happen. But (laughs) I don't know why that's like so hard to convey to people, but I guess it's just because nobody knows. Well, because he's broke. I think that's that's part of the reframing too. Like, you know, you look, for instance, with the TikTok deal, ByteDance, and he floated this proposal of, a finder's fee for his administration for like finessing the deal or whatever. And I think before the tax disclosure, that would have been seen as him trying to enrich himself. And now it's like, oh no, he's trying to figure out how to like pay off all this debt he has. Mm -hmm. And so he's using like national security issues 
to try to basically get out from under his creditors. You look at the the, the Trump properties in other countries, right? Like that also is, you know, in many ways a way for him to try to get out from under debt. And I think in many ways, this was what this was exactly what people were referring to when they were calling his financial entanglements a national security threat and why it was so important that he didn't divest himself of his financial sort of entanglements at the very beginning of the administration, as is generally required of people who assume the highest office in this country. It's because, like, you don't want to have creditors in Saudi Arabia who are responsible by proxy for dictating American, like, foreign policy priorities. You don't want to have creditors in Russia who are tied to the Kremlin you know, who are dictating national security properly. Like, this is precisely why. Tochi, Tochi, but but Hunter Biden. But, 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 but Hunter, Hunter Biden. Biden. <laughs> right? Like, I, it's like, that's, that's exactly, it's that's the, exactly it. Um, the, the, it, you know, the thing is too, it's like, so he's, he has to pay like $5 million a year to keep that post office hotel um, afloat in, I think the one in DC, he has to pay like, a lot of money to keep the Doral afloat. Like it's not only, it's like these businesses don't, can't pay for themselves. So the debt actually just gets bigger and bigger. Right. And so the, and the desperation, and I think if you, if you look at his behavior in the debates through the lens of someone whose entire business acumen has been completely fucking shattered, his reputation has just been obliterated by the New York Times in one like morning post, then you see that he his entire sense of self is gonna is is being really seriously damaged right now. Like it's interesting because I remember I, the, the first thing I thought of was like I remember Howard Stern talking about Donnie like in 2017 or something when he took office that he was like worried. He was like I'm worried because I just don't think his ego can handle mm. like this job or something like that. Do you guys mm. remember that? It was like. The, Howard Stern being like, no, it's just like he's not strong enough to like handle like this thing to his ego or whatever. And this is the thing. This is the fundamental thing is that he sold himself as a businessman, but he's a really terrible businessman. And then I think the other thing, you know, I, I have a friend whose mom is an immigrant, but also a Trump supporter. It's just a fun combination. And uh, and I, I texted him. I was like, well, how is your mom spinning the, the tax returns? Because... Because if the thing is that he's good for business, because that's the thing that, it, you know, when you talk to a lot of like people in, um, you know, I had I had some recent run ins with San Diego, California Republicans like California is by and large a blue state. But there are these hilarious pockets and uh, and they're, you know, some of them are like super lovely people. They're just like, well, it's just like, you know, he's, he's just better for the economy. But I'm like in it, we he literally doesn't know how to budget because in our, in the time that he's been in office, we've also racked up more of a debt that we're not paying for, right? So our national debt is higher. Like it, everything that happens on his personal balance sheet is now happening in the countries. Um, and for that, the, it, I I guess my question is, will this shatter the image at all for, for that one guy's big toe that's undecided? <laughs> Will this shatter the image that he's a good businessman? I think this I think the spin here, if you're sort of reaching for justification, is like, oh, he paid so little in taxes. He's smart. He knows the system. He knows his way around the system. But what about the debt? And, I mean, like, what if you're the debt, he's a, I 
actually very poor. I, I think that's part of it too. I mean, yeah. I mean we don't really yeah. know. We don't really know his net yeah. worth. That's part right. of the thing with the tax returns. We don't but really But we know. definitely know he made a shit ton of money on The Apprentice. And then he's like, I have all this yes. money. What should I do with it? I'm going to buy five failing golf resorts. Like, you know, he's a terrible <laughs> businessman. There were terrible. so many. He could have just put it in the stock market and let it sit there and he could have done better. He could have put or it in Bank like of in America <laughs> savings account and just let it sit I there. Know. He could have put it in the Lower East Side Credit <laughs> Union and let it sit there. Like, he, it's insane. It, because it was upwards of $400 million that he made off of, off of The Apprentice and related uh, Apprentice things. And then that's the amount that he's also in debt for. <laughs> it's like exactly what he made he lost. And it, and it's funny because none of the businesses had to be failing businesses. It's just that he doesn't know how to run businesses. Yep. Um, it, it, it's it's. It's baffling, but then the other interesting thing is he's now also brought in his whole family, so he's got a whole family of people who I guess also don't know how to run businesses, um, and and so it's like a dynasty of uh, of emptiness. It's really shocking, and I think that the Yao is he smart to only pay seven fifty. That works if you really heavily compartmentalize and only focus on the fact that he paid seven fifty mm-hmm. in, in federal income tax, and don't look at the part where he's heavily, heavily indebted and is losing money every single day. Absolutely, I don't know. Yeah, I'm so curious. If you folks, people of Fake the Nation, if you have any friends or family out there that have given you a really interesting and that are Trump supporters and have given you a really interesting hot take on how they're reading this uh, tax return news, I am dying to to hear more uh hit me up and now uh god oh i feel like i have to take a breath that was the tax return actually makes me more something than the debates did because 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 the thing that the new york magazine article pointed out that we could pay for so many things like child care folks i have a toddler screaming screaming in my ear all day long please someone pay for child care you know what i mean we have a babysitter, but still, like, it's very difficult to pay for that on my, you know, on the, on the, in this life that I'm living. Okay. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm just sad about the, I'm just sad about that. All right. Let's move on. This is, we're going to take a quick breath. <gasps> Whoo, there it is. That's the ashwagandha kicking in right there. And we're going to move on to topic number three. Um, Disaster preppers are an interesting and very small subject subsect of the population. The stereotypes around them are that they're white, they're male, they're they keep a lot of canned foods, um, and they're paranoid. <laughs> oh, canned foods and guns. Um, and then they're paranoid about violent unrest. Uh, but on the low end of the spectrum, I guess there are also people who are really worried about earthquakes and uh, natural disasters and climate change disasters. And so they keep a few days worth of water or something. Uh, so before we start talking about this this piece we read in the New York Times um, about this sort of like evolution of disaster preppers, let me ask you where you are in that disaster prep spectrum. Uh, I am definitely the planner. I, I guess you could say I'm the domestic type. But but here's what here's what I say. I think. Um, a lot of us lean toward one or the other, and that different uh, crises, crises call for different types of disaster prep. So I'm leaning into my domestic um, disaster prep with a little bit of gardening and compost and like meal prep on a level that I haven't done since college being broke. Um, and 
And I like it. It's satisfying and it feels useful. So, but are you, like, are you, like, are you worried? Like, is there something, you know, is, is it, is it, a, bl- a blackout from a hurricane? Is it just the pandemic? Is it like, is there a thing that keeps you up at night? The thing that... On the disaster front? Uh, the thing that does keep me up at night is impending civil war. I guess I was talking more about just like... Um, the, <laughs> you the laugh, general, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I guess my, my, my disaster prep has been because of the pandemic. Like that kind of low-level right. um, disaster prep where it's just a constant bleed rather than a, a, a big hit. Um, but yeah, what keeps me up at night is impending civil war. And I do have like an entire, um, decision tree based on what happens and what, what could happen, whether, you know, as small as just like consolidating what I own to leaving the country. Um, which again, I think is still kind of in the planning, the non-confrontational, um, like I'm not going to buy a gun and like join the ranks if that does happen, because I would suck at it. Oh, God, I would suck. You got to know your skill set. <laughs> That's the really important part of all of it. Uh, Tochi, where are you at? I'm at the, um, you know, make sure the passport is valid and check the visa restrictions internationally stage of disaster prep. I think part of it is, you know, there there is a uh, like an environmental climate element, but it's you know, if I had to deal with climate change or had to position myself, um, you know, with a government dealing with climate change, I would rather it not be the U.S. Um, I would rather be somewhere else. And that has another sort of societal relationship with the environment than the U.S. does. Um, I think one one of the things that we're seeing now is the normalization of the dealing with the effects of climate change. Um, you know, people buying gas masks and that being a more sort of domestic, um, you know, household item, you know, like paper towels and Brita filters. Like people have gas masks now in certain parts of the country, you know. If you live in a particularly earthquake-prone region, like there's that, you know, other places offer flood insurance if you live below a certain waterline. Um, living on the East Coast, I don't necessarily have to deal with that as much. But like Sarah, my one of my biggest worries is impending civil war. To that end, I I have a lot of friends actually who are who if they don't already have firearms are getting guns and getting concealed carry permits. Um, Many for self-preservation purposes, like they don't have plans to join a militia, but, you know, white guys with guns who are members of militia or who may not even be official members of militia are most likely to come after them and, you know, us. Uh, So there is, I think, that genre of disaster prep, which is very sort of defensive and is very much like, you know, the the most dangerous part of The Walking Dead isn't the zombies, it's the other humans. Mm Mm-hmm. <laughs> the two of you are like uh not how I'm thinking. Okay. I also had a walking dead thought too, but I mean like we're on the same page. We're all okay. Yeah. okay. I no no. I I look again because um because I now know more poll workers than I've ever known in my entire life. My faith and my hope and my everything is going into those people, right? My, you know, I'm not, like, for me, disaster prep is always about rolling blackouts, blackouts, um, hurricane stuff, 
earthquake stuff. I grew up in earthquakes. Um, it's stuff like that where I'm, and also it's funny because this next example may, may make you think that I would have a civil unrest fear, but like, you know, going to Iran, I went to Iran during the Iran-Iraq war, but it was like, you know, it's kind of like low, low times or whatever in the war. Um, but I remembered experiencing a lot of rolling blackouts and a lot of like, you know, the, the managing their energy. And just in general, and I've talked about Iran and the Iran-Iraq war uh, before and the way that my family dealt with it, is that it's more about just like, look, we have to go through this thing. It sucks. How are we going to go through it as a family? Let's make sure we have candles and, you know, and, and food and this and that, but also a deck of cards and the ukulele on hand, you know? So it's, I think for me, um, disaster prep is more about like maintain, you know, maintaining some sort of um, normalcy through a difficult time. It's not a I think end time scenarios, Mad Max like scenarios. Um, I am just too um, hopeful, and you know, I, I again, like I have to say, I was on um, a call last night with my local progressive organization, Coda, and uh, that's the um, for people who live in the Lower East Side of New York City. Uh, please join. Um, and oh my God, the number of people who are out there registering people to vote. Um, you know, the the we, our state assembly person was on, our city councilwoman was on. Um, every you know the the care the, de- the 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 level of care on like how what do these ballots looks like look like and are they clear and where do people take them and and just. These are people like me and you who are who who care so deeply about the city, who care so deeply about the country, and they're not running away. And I'm not and I'm not trying to pass judgment on you guys. Do I have dreams of like going to France always? But I'm but the idea is we make this the parts of the the, the Frenchness that we want or whatever, right? Like we do that here. Because it is great, because it is fantastic. And also, you know, and 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 like Uh, And again, there's like that legacy thing for me as a children of immigrants, like my parents didn't bring me here for me to be like, fuck this place. I'm out. You know what I mean? No, like I have a responsibility now and I have a kid and she's got to inherit a fantastic thing and I'm not going to settle for anything less than fantastic for her. You know what I mean? So for me, disaster prep is getting through things that suck, getting to the other side, which is definitely better. You know what I mean? Which will be better because we have to make it better because we have no choice. Um, I hope that didn't sound like no. a no, it's, I think it's, it's trying it's to, like, I know it's like yeah. an, an utter no, opposition I think it's, I think it's, I think that's a fantastic and necessary, you know, like perspective and point of view. And it makes me think a lot about my conversations with mom, who's a Nigerian immigrant, you know, particularly in 2017, you know, right around the time of the inauguration, You know, you had this executive figure who was surrounding himself with military generals and taking shots at an independent judiciary. And mom coming from Nigeria was like, hmm, where have I seen this before? And, I, you know, (laughs) one of the sort of points we kept coming back to was this this idea of whether or not Americans would realize that America is a country just like every other country. Uh, Because I think there's this idea of American exceptionalism, like it can't happen here. So mom coming from Nigeria grew up in a place where if you could afford it, you had a generator because the National Power Administration 
like the only consistent yeah. like part of electricity in Nigeria was its inconsistency. You know, you look at parts yeah. of South Africa, yeah, yeah, like parts of South Africa with the load shedding and the way that people are able to deal with this sort of thing. And then in America where, where, you know, at least, you know, unevenly distributed, like people generally have the resources or have had the resources to continue living with a sense of normalcy, even through all of the chaos and carnage of the past four years. You know, one of the things that I think will be absolutely necessary in the sort of pushing through to make this the most fantastic country it can be is this realization that it can happen, that democracy and what we have here in terms of American society takes work. Like, it doesn't just yes. happen. Like, it takes absolutely. We work. don't get to sit around and watch, you know, uh, Love Island <laughs> or whatever. Like, yeah. we can. We can, right? And it's funny because I think AOC wrote some some post about, like, you know, brunch is over or something like that. Like, there's no time for or whatever. And I don't believe that. I believe that we should have fucking fun. I think we should, like, embrace what makes us happy um, because it's going to make us better citizens. I just also think we need to budget time in the day to be good citizens. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's just, you brush your teeth, you fucking get dressed, you fucking do something for democracy, you fucking get to your t- other to-do list. It's like, that is just a part of it. And we have very, for very, very long left it off the list. And uh, and it's been easy and we've just sort of like let things, you know, we've let these like tax loopholes build up and we've let corporations run away with murder and we've just like sort of let it happen because we've just been comfortable. And I think, it, and it's the price that we've paid for this like standard of living, this like the comfort that we have. Um, and, 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 and it's, I mean, we've veered away from disaster prep, but, but, I, but I think, but you're, but you're absolutely, uh, you're absolutely right, Toti. Yeah. And I think that like disaster prep is more than just like, covering your basic need. If we're talking like Maslow's hierarchy of needs here, right? Like even even if we do like devote our time to being a good citizen and making sure we have the best democracy we can, we need to refill the tank. We got to do both. And we can only refill the tank by playing like and, and building community. Yes. Uh, and, and that's like the only way we can survive uh, approaching tyranny too, is just building community and having physical, like real relationships with the people around you, not just online. And yes, get off social media, but also doing, (laughs) but doing all the other shit too. You gotta have balance. Millennials, millennials suck at balance and we need to get better. We really do. Um, well, folks, the funny thing is, like, sh- the point of this woman's article, which, by the way, um, the name of this piece is called I'm Not a Housewife, I'm a Prepper by Mira Patassin. Um, sorry if I'm butchering her name, but she she basically wanted to talk about um, disaster prep as more of like a homemaking kind of um kind of eschewing the masculine energy of the disaster prep that we know that's scary and weird and then and and embracing a little bit more of like the earthy feminine energy um and it sounds a little bit sarah like that you you're kind of with your composting bins um embracing a little bit of of that um but uh, but read that piece. We didn't really get into that, her part of the argument, but it doesn't matter because I think we had a fantastic discussion anyways. Um, so, folks, that, 
I mean, I, I am I'm moved by the the millennials and balance. I think that's a really good place to end to end the show. Um, that's the end of the show. And what one of the things we ask people is to um, tell us what has made you kind of feel hopeful uh, during these difficult times. Overused phrase. <sighs> what has made me feel hopeful? <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, since, since the pandemic and my uh, in-person relationships have gotten far, far smaller, um, the intensity of the few real relationships I have, um, in my small circle have, have been life-giving and hopeful. Um, and I just hope we can all just invest a little more in those small circles now rather than chase weak ties, um, forever and ever until we die. <laughs> is that hopeful <laughs> enough? <laughs> yeah, lovely. No, no, I love I love that though, because I feel the same way. You know, the friends that are my real friends are like so my real friends mm. right now. You know, it's so very clear. Uh Tochi, what makes you feel hopeful? Um, so I recently got into online gaming, finally. So I'm I'm like on Twitch. I'm like a gamer on Twitch now. And one of the things that's, uh, and I think this goes to community in a, in a sort of, you know, similar, but interestingly, like, you know, opposite direction is that I've found, I've gotten involved in an incredible sort of, you know, wealth of communities through online games in a way that I haven't necessarily found on, on Twitter or in other, you know, in other online communities. Uh-huh. And it's just, I think part of it too is there's such, it's like the baseline is joy because you're doing a thing that you enjoy. You're playing, you know, whether it's Among Us, whether it's, you know, Red Dead Redemption 2, whether it's like Bloodborne or whatever, you're like, the baseline is you're doing a thing that you love or that you enjoy or, you know, a challenge that interests you. And there are other people around you participating who are interested in that. And because like games are so interactive, it promises and delivers on this completely different realm of interaction than you would get in other sort of media. And so like the fact that that community is so thriving and the boost in like Twitch activity that has happened during the course of this pandemic has actually given me a lot of hope with regards to like human relations and like granted, you know, parts of the gaming industry and the gamer community, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly toxic. But the fact that that wonderful, warm, supportive communities are still springing to life amidst all of that. Like that gives me, that gives me a lot of hope. That's really lovely. And I don't know anything about the gaming community. <laughs> so I am just taking you at your word, but it sounds really great. And you do seem uh, like a, you have a glow <laughs> as you talk about it. Um, I, I, I honestly, that the call I had last night with, um, with that progressive organization and just seeing like the, the number of people that were so into it. I'm uh, also part of this other group called NYC next, which I've mentioned on the show before, like just these people that are like finding out, finding new and creative ways to like bring the arts into the city at a time when theaters are closed. Um, it's like, it's, it's just amazing. You know, I saw um, like a jazz band on Friday um, with these like, you know, really 
um, amazing, well-regarded um, jazz musicians performing who just, they're just here. Uh, and they're, they're um, like these high caliber people that, you know, uh, that are just performing on the street because they're just giving us this gift of music, right? And uh, that stuff just, I love it. And it really keeps me going. So um, so thanks. Thank you to the arts community, the um, activist community. Uh, they're, they're a little delightful. You know what I mean? Um, but I would, uh, love for the people of Faith Nation to be able to follow you and all the good stuff that you do. Sarah, where do they find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at yourapapalardo, and you can check out Reductress at Reductress.com. We've got a store called Shop Reductress, and we also do satire workshops if you're interested in that. You can find it all on our website. Uh, definitely check out Reductress. Wow, what a great site. Uh, Tochi, where do people find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Trey's64. That's T-R-E-I-Z-E-6-4. You can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Tochi True Story. Uh, my website, TochiOnYabuchi.com, has, you know, news and updates and everything with regards to what I'm working on. Uh, and uh, all my books are available at bookshop.org. I highly recommend if you're interested in purchasing a copy to purchase from bookshop.org. Proceeds go to supporting uh, indie bookstores. Um, if you don't know of any indies like in your particular city or where you're from, that's a very good place to be able to get books from and know that you are helping to keep the independent bookstore community alive and not contributing to the uh, leviathanic evil that is amazon.com. <laughs> <laughs> yes, bookshop.org. Love that. Um, well, you folks know where to find me on all of the social medias that I actually abhor, but I'm still using. I don't know because I'm a part of this business. I don't know. I don't know what to do. If you have any uh, tips on how I can get out of social media while still using social media, I would love that. Um, thank you to our production team here at Fake the Nation. That's our producer, Anita Flores, our talented audio engineer, Andy Kristen Scobby, Alter wrote our theme music, and Lily Fleshler helps out with research. And uh, I will uh, fight for America with all of these people so gladly. They're so wonderful. And you know who I really want to fight for America with? It's you folks. We love hearing from you. You've been sending us the races to watch. You've been sending us information about how you're working on the elections. I love it. I, I can't get enough of it. It truly, truly keeps me going and being able to share it with the rest of the um, podcasting audience. I think help keeps them going too. So send us... Um, all the stuff you're doing with races, you can send us a voicemail, leave us a voicemail at 331-901-0005 or drop us a line at commentsatfakethenation.com. Um, you can tell us about topics we should be chatting about, guest ideas, anything you want. Uh, we love hearing from you. And if you like what you hear, please favorite Fake the Nation on Stitcher, follow us on Spotify, uh, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review because it helps people find the show. Um, uh, thank you, folks. We'll be back in your earballs next week.